I will still this month be be preaching from our reading plan as we have been all year because I'm still excited about it and still praying about it. And, And my prayer has been from the beginning that everyone at Bethel will have a regular daily time in the word by the end of the year. And that's a big prayer, but it's only halfway through so it can still happen. It can still happen. And we can still be part of this answer to this prayer. As our Lord said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So join us in reading through the New Testament together this year. And I want to share, uh, while I'm talking about that, I want to share one exciting update to the online version of the reading plan. Matthew Marshall has made it so that uh, the week that we are currently on is always at the top. So no more scrolling, scrolling to find where we're at. And the scriptures, he's also made it so that the scripture reference links to the Bible. So you can just click it and read it right there. Super easy and awesome. Uh, Anyway, so thank you, Matthew, for that. And uh, the text from our last week's readings that I have selected for this morning is found in John chapter 6, because it talks about bread, and I love bread, um, and I love food. And I'm, not, I'm in good company because Jesus also loves food, and he was actually criticized, if you remember, for being a glutton and a drunkard. Falsely, I might add, but still it's hard to get accused of being a glutton without any affinity for food, right? And, and when he taught us to pray, he included provision of daily food. And when he taught us to remember his sacrifice, he instituted a simple meal to be shared together. And when he performed a sign for a a miracle for his biggest crowd, it was to feed them. And then when he performed a miracle sign for his second biggest crowd, he fed them too. And when he rose from the dead and wanted to prove his humanity, he did so how? By eating with his friends. And when he described the ultimate hope of our homecoming, he described it as a celebratory feast. But I suppose the greatest proof is that when he made us, he gave us taste buds and stomachs. And then he became one of us to eat and drink forever. And we might actually accidentally get turned around on this point because when we, we read the scripture passage for this morning and we see Jesus describing himself as food, we might think that food was there so he capitalized on it to make his point. But no, no, no. He knew from the beginning that if he was going to create anything, it would be utterly dependent on him. And he knew that he would make us to be spiritually dependent upon him in a, in a specific way. And so he made food as an integral part of his design and creation in order to reveal the truth about himself. What I'm saying is that, when we, that we describe Christ as bread, not just because bread exists and it provides a good picture of sustenance. No, it's actually the other way around. Bread exists because Christ is the bread of life and the true bread from heaven. And when we view things this way, we start to see things more beautifully and rightly. Because as long as there have been humans, there has been food. And every bite has been proclaiming the message of God's sustaining provision and goodness. Perhaps the one thing common to Christians throughout History is different as we have been at times. One thing we all have in common is that we thank God for our food. And rightly so. 
But this text that we're about to read shows us that we thank him not only for providing physical food to us, but also for providing spiritual food. Actually being food for our souls. So look down in verse 26 of John 6. And this is just to set the context. This is the next day after Jesus did that miracle of feeding the multitude and the crowd has come looking for him again. And I'm going to read a big chunk here about a little over 30 verses. And so I won't be able to comment on all of it, but I do want you to hear all of it. So it's all in your head and your heart as, as this, I preach this sermon. So please listen well to this. Okay, so here we go. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent so they said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate uh, the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, the father and mother, uh, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except who is from God. He, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So these crowds who um, Jesus had miraculously fed, they come after him again, wanting more of the same, essentially, and Jesus tries to explain to them that they're missing the point. It was a sign. And signs are meant to point to something else, not to themselves. And what was this sign pointing to? Well, let me gather up and consolidate all the ways Jesus says it in those 32 verses. And I know you just listened to that long passage, but I think it will help us see Jesus' point and how emphatic he is about this point. To see him articulate it over and over again in this story. Verse 27, the food that endures to eternal life, the Son of Man will give to you. Verse 33, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Verse 55, my flesh is true food. Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in him and me and I in him. Verse 57, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Jesus is very emphatic on this point. He came not just to give us bread, but to be our bread. He is teaching that our souls need food, just as our bodies do. And that he is that food. And I want to talk more about what he means by that in a few minutes. But first, I want to talk about something that I believe is implied by his teaching. That when Jesus says he is true food, uh, which alone can satisfy our souls, what he is saying by implication is that the world is spiritually starving. Right? If we are spiritual beings who are satisfied by the bread of life, Jesus Christ, then when we go after other things and consume other things to feed on for our souls, then we are like, they are like mud pies that cannot halt our hunger or delay our decay. Human beings are starving to death, spiritually, apart from the true bread. And as soon as I saw that in the text, I thought of something that I heard about several months ago, a metaphor that has been so enlightening to me with so much explanatory power. Uh, so here it is. During World War II, a daring scientist named Ansel Keys conducted an experiment on 36 young men. 
And it's an experiment that could not be repeated today in light of our current ethical standards. It's known as the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. And over the course of a year, Keyes studied these men who volunteered to be put on a starvation diet for six months of that year. And when you listen to these men talk about that year and read what some of them wrote, it is incredibly enlightening for understanding starvation and hunger and how it affects a person. And I believe that we can see parallels spiritually. In fact, I believe some of the symptoms are exactly the same. These were men of character when they began, which is testified to the fact that they were willing to be a part of this this uh, terrible experiment at all. Many of them did it as their contribution to the war effort, since many of them couldn't fight due to their convictions. Many of them were conscientious objectors. And so I speak of their character because as you listen to what happened to them, many of them began to see their character slip away. One of them recounted with horror a time when he passed a little boy on the street who was happily skipping. And he had just imagined that that boy was skipping home for dinner. And he hated that boy, hated him. And this same man was extremely friendly before this experiment, and he began to isolate himself. And he wrote in his diary of becoming extremely and irrationally angry and irritable. And after a couple months, the men, all the men could only go out in pairs of two because one of the participants who had been having dreams of cannibalism went on a binge where he went into restaurants and ate and drank 17 milkshakes in a row. And most of the men developed an obsession with cookbooks, reading them religiously. And, and all of the men would sit and watch other people eat. And they would drink coffee to excess because it was one of the things they could have. And what I'm intrigued by is how many of these symptoms are shared between physical starvation and spiritual starvation. Here's what I'm saying. If you've been having symptoms in your life, you may be starving spiritually. You may be starving yourself unnecessarily. Are you irritable? Easily irritated by others? Are you angry? Are you obsessed with watching other people do meaningful things and live interesting lives, whether real or fictional? Do you isolate yourself? Can you be trusted to be alone, lest you overindulge or sin? Do you imagine others enjoying things that you don't get to and then secretly despise them? Do you hoard your pleasures hungrily and anxiously lest they be taken away? Are you always looking for that next hit of pleasure, no matter how measly? You might be on a starvation diet spiritually. But the negative effects were not the only effects on these men. One of, one of, the, uh, of all these men these, who, who were in this experiment, if you read about what they did after the experiment, it's, I think it's incredible that afterwards, many went on to work hard to bring relief for the hungry. Seven signed up for something called Heifers for Relief, a program uh, after the war that shipped livestock from America to Europe, and they would, they would take trips with the animals taking care of them over the, over the, overseas. And then uh, another worked in relief camps, and another named Sam Legg worked with Quakers buying food for the hungry in post-war Europe. One traveled to the Middle East to feed refugees in Gaza, one, when he had children, he made them eat nothing but white rice every Wednesday to empathize with the hungry. 
One became a missionary to Africa. Several went to seminary. So many of them, once their eyes were open to hunger, became driven to provide relief for that hunger. And it's the same with spiritual hunger. In fact, many of these men went on to no longer make a distinction between the two. It's simple. When you have been hungry and then been fed, you want other people who are hungry to be fed. But this is why we Christians travel to the ends of the world, like places like Bangladesh, and are always wanting people to believe in Jesus. Our eyes have been opened to spiritual hunger. But more importantly, our eyes have been opened to true spiritual satisfying sustenance. And we see from this experiment the negative side effects of hunger, but also the positive motivation of hunger relief. That once hunger is satisfied, it wants to relieve hunger. And there's one last thing that we can learn from it too. And that's the distortions of desire that starvation creates. One of the men in the starvation experiment wrote in his diary, Books on starvation tell us that hungry people often eat clay, wood, bark, unclean animals, and even become cannibalistic. Yesterday, I took the lead out of a pencil and began chewing the wood. It tasted all right. For some crazy reason, I crave raw horseradish, sassafras roots, rabbit meat. I think about how cannibalism is a terrible option for a starving person. I try to put it out of my mind, but I can't seem to stop thinking about it. As a starving person eats things to temporarily quench their hunger, that won't actually help them. There are many spiritual options like that as well. People are always chasing after something to temporarily ease their spiritual ache of emptiness. And just like clay and wood will do that physically, there are things that will do it spiritually. And that's so dangerous because you have these symptoms, these hunger pains, because you're starving, you're dying. And I'm sure that mud pies will ease some of the pain and make you feel better for a bit. But in the long run, it's deadly because it it objectively can't really sustain you. It can't halt your starvation. And it might lull you into thinking that you are fine so you don't need anything else. If there's a spiritual component to reality as well as a physical one, which we believe there is, then just to seek symptom relief and just what works for me is dangerous. Because what if you are so starved that you're having those crazy cravings? And what if they make you feel okay for a bit? You know, every single religion, false religion, philosophy, even the craziest and wildest and and, and most incoherent can produce people who say, I have joy and meaning in life now because of my adherence to this wonderful organization. Anybody can produce that. Gangs produce that. Boundary-pushing online communities produce that. CrossFit produces that. A romantic relationship can produce that. But it's all temporary. And what if you feel good for a while, but objectively you're still dying? Because your spirit was made to feed on real spiritual food. And these other things simply can't satisfy a soul. Don't you see how destructive that would be? 
And Christ steps up and he says, you can't just seek what works for you and your present desires. Your present desires are distorted by your starvation. And Christ says, I am the true food that you must eat in order to live. He doesn't deny that there's other things that can satisfy for a moment, but it's like a spiritual placebo effect. And he says, you must come to me because I am the truth and the life. There is objective spiritual truth and I am it. You can fool yourself into the grave, chasing empty things in a delirious state of spiritual starvation. And he says, come to me. Partake of me. I am what your soul was made to feed on. I alone can sustain your spiritual life. And when you deprive yourself of the true spiritual food, you will experience all these terrible side effects. And the one that we haven't talked about yet that's probably the most troubling is how some of these men had thoughts of cannibalism that they couldn't shake. You become consumed with the satisfaction of your own hunger that you no longer care if it's at the expense of other people. And there are profound parallels spiritually. Humanity's ravenous hunger comes out in ways that it uses others, takes from others, destroying others in your own fulfillment. Most foundational probably being theft, which itself is more complex than some of the thoughts that just popped into your head. But the idea of consuming others for your own fulfillment extends to many parts of this world. Think of men who use women for sex, whether digitally or physically, consuming them temporarily to fill their own void. Think of the abortion industry that disposes of life for convenience. Babies sacrificed on the altar of personal autonomy. Think of the epidemic of divorce, especially when kids are involved. People so hungry for whatever they feel they're not getting that they dispose of something God joined together at the great cost of other people's lives. Our spiritual hunger does not just affect ourselves. It can drive us to disastrous effects for others as well. Consuming others in the quest for personal fulfillment or even relief. And this is the one of the contrasts that C.S. Lewis draws between heaven and hell. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, the senior demon Screwtape writes to his nephew, Wormwood, and when Wormwood fails in his assignment to damn the human under his charge, Screwtape writes with pleasure at the thought of consuming Wormwood. So according to Lewis's imagination, there's a food chain in hell in which the higher consumes the lower which makes sense because it's the exact opposite of the image of heaven that Jesus gives us here, where the food chain is that the highest of all gives himself as food for all, which produces radically different results. A world of love rather than fear. The food chain of hell where the higher consumes the lower, it, when you look for it, you see it all over our world. Like in bureaucracies where the lower is expendable and the higher-ups are inflated at their expense and the culture is one of rule and fear and control and competition. But the people of God are to be governed not by fear, but by love. And we are set free to live this way because we do not need to consume each other to be satisfied. We feast on the bread of life to sustain and satisfy our souls, which results in a trickle-down effect of goodness and an expanding circle of life. The greatest among us giving himself rather than taking. 
And because he overflows so abundantly, we too are not only satisfied, but we overflow with love. But in order to experience this, we must feed on him. And it's a meal that in our distorted desires of spiritual starvation doesn't seem appealing to us. I recently taught Evergreen that old song about great green gobs of greasy, grimy gopher guts. Anybody know it? Mutilated monkey meat, little dirty birdie's feet. Anyway, she loves it. And when we are spiritually starving, that's how we think of true spiritual food. We see it like that. Maybe some weird foreign tribe might like something like that, but I could never eat that. And so what hope is there for someone whose cravings are so distorted by their starvation that they can't muster up a desire for what will actually sustain them? Intervention. God takes the initiative of intervention and makes the first move and draws you to Christ. And without that intervention, you would not come. And you would choose starvation. Jesus says this in this text several ways, but most clearly in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And right before that, he tells them, do not grumble among yourselves. He's saying, I know that this doesn't sound appealing to you. I know you're grumbling. And that's because you're craving great green gobs of greasy, grimy gopher guts, and I'm offering you fresh artisan sourdough bread. And I'm telling you, it's better. I know you don't see that in your starvation, but it's better and it's less toxic. And my father will show you. He will open your eyes and your nose and you will come and eat. And some of you today are being drawn. You're seeing the beauty of what you once found unappealing. You're seeing the emptiness and the toxicity of what your soul has been feeding on. And you're being drawn by the Father. And now you must eat the bread that he's offering you. And Jesus puts this rather explicitly. Look again at verse 53 and 56, through 56. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, it sounds graphic, but he's pointing to something. Because you can't drink blood that isn't spilt. And you can't eat flesh that hasn't died. He's pointing to his sacrifice that he's going to make for us and how his death is the key to our life. That we partake of his sacrifice of himself on the cross. And this idea should be familiar to us because we do this once a month with the Lord's Supper. A central pillar of our worship as Christians is a meal in which we eat and drink things that are images of Christ's broken body and his shed blood. The early Christians were criticized by the pagan world for being cannibals because of this practice. It's quite vivid and visceral and striking, and we shouldn't become jaded to it. Jesus knew how he sounded, and he still spoke this way. We worship in paradox. We remember with joy something that's absolutely terrible. 
Our souls are sustained by the lamb who was slain. Pastor Andrew and I have written another Lord's Supper song together that we'll be starting to play uh, for you all this month. And it's called Not by Bread Alone. And it's aiming at this idea that Christ is our spiritual sustenance. And in particular, his sacrifice of himself. The refrain of the song says, Hungry hearts now satisfied. His tree of death, our tree of life. Because in the Lord's Supper, we are remembering his sacrifice. But we're doing more than that too. Our souls are actually being fed through faith. Being fed on him through faith. And as we fix our hearts on his sacrifice in faith, we partake of, as we partake of the ordinance that he gave us, we are feasting on his life and abiding in him and he is abiding in us. But here's the thing. The Lord's Supper isn't the only time we do this. It's just the most concentrated and the most focused. I like to think of it as a recurring vow renewal ceremony. Like when a married couple does something like that, they, they leave that experience with reinvigorated love and commitment for the rest of life. They don't think, oh yeah, as soon as it's over, I did my duty. Like, no, that, that's for the rest of life, right? And even the initial wedding ceremony is not supposed to be about the wedding as much as it is about the marriage, even though modern couples can get a little too caught up in the wedding. It is important, don't get me wrong, it's very important. But more important is how those vows and prayers and symbols shape your life together. And the Lord's Supper recenters us on how we are to live our whole life in faith that feeds on the sacrificial love of Christ, that remembers his gracious covenant, that trusts in his provision and promises. And he talks about this when, we when he first starts talking to these crowds and they come back to him after they tracked him down again. And he says to them, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And there's a hint there already because he says he's going to give it to us. So what kind of work is for a gift? And he answers that in the follow-up with their, after they ask their follow-up question, they say to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And he answers them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is him telling us how to eat the bread of life. Because if you look down to verse 35 and 36, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So he equates believing in him with coming to him. And coming to him and believing in him, he says, quenches our thirst and satisfies our hunger. Now there's two ways to talk about never hungering and never thirsting again. Those men in that starvation experiment, they came to make a distinction between hunger as they experienced it that year and hunger as they had previously known that word. Which is, so which one, and if that distinction is true, which I think it is, which one is Jesus talking about? I think I read it wrong for a long time because I hadn't been thinking about real hunger, starvation level hunger. The first way and the way I used to read it is that this is a magical meal that removes the concept of hunger and thirst from you forever. You once craved food, but now you've eaten a meal so satisfying, you're good to go for the rest of life. But there's another way to talk about never going hungry again. It's best expressed through a little parable that I'll tell you now. A poor boy was starving in the street. 
When a king saw him and had pity on him and invited him into his home and then adopted him as his own and sat him by his side at a dinner table from then on so that the boy was never to hunger or thirst again. So in this parable, it's not a magically satisfying meal. It's a plentiful, abundant, and always available meal whenever he wants or needs. This is the kind of satisfaction I believe Jesus is talking about. So in this understanding, you come to him and you come to him and you come to him and you never need to go hungry. He is abundant and satisfying and always available. And this is why I talked about some of you being on a spiritual starvation diet. You aren't returning to the table. You aren't feasting on the food that's in front of you. And when you do, it changes something about your life. It changes something about everything in your life. At least something about everything in your life is transformed. Let's start where Jesus starts. What did he, does he say to the crowd? He talks to them about their work. He says, don't work for the food that perishes. They were seeking primarily physical stuff. They worked for bread so that they could eat in a closed loop until they, boom, they died. Work, bread, work, bread, death. They wanted Jesus because he could cut out a step. They were thinking merely practically. And this has crept into all parts of life. Even schooling, which is one of the things we've talked about with starting Bethel Academy. The pragmatic approach to education is just so you can get a job. So you can eat bread, maybe even fancy bread, and then die. And is there any higher aims for education we believe that there are higher aims for education, especially, but we believe that there's higher aims for everything as well. Now, Jesus, Jesus didn't say don't work. He's saying the motivation and goals and desires and perspective are all transformed as you work. You believe not just once. You believe in him all day, every day. You consider him. You fix your eyes on him as, from, as Pastor Tim preached on last week so well from Hebrews 12. And as you do, you, he becomes soul food. He sustains you. He satisfies you. He strengthens you. He removes all those side effects of starvation, the distorted cravings, the antisocial behavior, the, the, the anger, the envy, the fear and you go from existing to living. That's what he's talking about when he says he's the bread of life. And when you eat of him, you will live. You have eternal life. And eternity makes a difference in our lives. Not just quantitatively, but also qualitatively. Honestly, if you think about your life as a matter of years versus a matter of millennia, don't you think that would make a difference? It makes a difference even in our, in our lifespan of how much time we have left. The things a 70-year-old thinks about are different from the things a 20-year-old thinks about. Choices, concerns are different. And the same is true between a man who thinks he has an end and a man who knows he doesn't. But it's not just about an amount of life. It's not even primarily about that. It's about a new and different kind of life. Later in the same book, in John, before he goes to die, Jesus prays an amazing prayer in one of my favorite passages of Scripture, John 17. And in that prayer, Jesus defines eternal life. 
In case you ever wanted a Jesus definition of eternal life, here it is. He says it's to know him and his father who sent him. In other words, eternal life is not just an amount. It's a new kind and quality of life. He's saying regular bread is for existing. The bread of life is for really living. Not just existing for a while. When I was in high school, there was a song that came out uh, that was like medium popular. So some of you might know it, some of you might not. And it was called, Hey Man, Now You're Really Living. And it repeated that after each verse. Hey man, now you're really living. I don't know if you know that. But the idea was that there's a verse between, there's a difference between living and really living. That's what he's getting at. The song's a little misguided in places, but at least they recognize that key distinction. A similar one to what Jesus is making. And the chorus of that song ends by saying, now you're really living what this life is all about. And no matter who you are, that's the goal, isn't it? To live what this life is all about, really about. And one side effect of that, it says in those verses, a positive side effect of really living. He says, in one verse he says, I just saw the sunrise over the hill. Never used to give me much of a thrill. But hey man, now I'm really living. And the idea he's getting at is that when you're really living, something as thrilling as the sun rising over the hill actually thrills you. But it doesn't when you're just existing. The weight and wonder of things that you once took for granted are now, uh, you're awed by, you're inspired by, you're moved by. And there's nothing so glorious as the grace of Christ towards sinners if we don't take it for granted, but instead eat and drink like men coming off of a starvation diet with eyes opened in a fresh way to the greatness of food. And we come to him and we keep coming to him. We partake of his grace, humbled and grateful and expectant. And now you're really living. This is his invitation to you this morning to no longer go hungry, and to really live. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for sending us the true bread from heaven that gives us eternal life. We thank you for drawing us to him that we might eat and live Lord, give us hope in the promise of eternal life and resurrection on the last day. Open our eyes in wonder at your grace in Christ that we may believe and abide in him with great joy and satisfaction. And we pray in his name. Amen.